Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Catechism. At BRCC, we believe that our catechism is a useful tool to help us understand and grow in our faith. But why? Find out in our series, Catechism. We're going to be continuing today as we've been doing a kind of a short little topical series as I get ready to begin preaching on 2 Timothy uh, in a couple of weeks. And so we've been looking at a few questions out of our catechism, which if you're not familiar uh, with a catechism, it's an ancient way that Christians since the earliest days have just had questions and answers to understand the, the central, most important things about our faith. And so we're looking at a few questions that are related to uh, redemption and mediation, what it means that Jesus is our Redeemer and Mediator. And today we're going to be looking at the idea that it is actually God who is our Redeemer. And so we're going to have two texts out of the Bible that we're going to talk through, which are in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And then out of uh, the letter of Paul to the Colossians, we'll look at chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. The verses are there in your booklet. They'll be on the screen. But I encourage you to also uh, open up your Bible and to uh, follow along so you can always look at the context. So, Acts 20, 28, and then Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Hear now the word of God, your creator and your redeemer. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And then Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Amen. The Word of God. Long time ago, uh, in the early part of the 4th century, in the early 300s, uh, there was a man named Athanasius. And Athanasius is one of the most important of the early church fathers. He later on became Bishop of Alexandria. But in the early 300s, he was actually just a leader there in the church. And during that time, a man named Arius, who was another leader in the church, began to teach that Jesus isn't truly God. Uh, Jesus was a high being. He was like a little g God, but he was, in fact, created. And the catchphrase of Arius and his followers became, there was a time when he was not. If you went all the way back to the beginning, you can find a time when God was there, but Jesus was not there. And Athanasius and the other leaders, including the, the Bishop of Alexandria at the time, rightly reacted against this. And you have to remember, this is at the time when Constantine 
has just become the emperor and Christianity is no longer being persecuted. It had just gone through its worst persecution ever in the early 300s, but now it's okay to be a Christian. So for the first time, the entire church can come together in a council. It was known as the Council of Nicaea. And at that council, they considered this question and they said, Arius, you're a heretic. No, there was not a time he was not. Jesus is, in fact, divine. And Athanasius, who I mentioned, wrote a book called On the Incarnation of the Word. And in that, he's describing who Jesus is, that he is the eternal Lagos, he is the eternal Word of God, and he became human. He took on flesh. And so he wrote this book uh, on the incarnation of the Word. And so this was a huge battle. And I'll actually, in after hours, uh, you can tune in on Tuesday, and I'll talk a little bit more about this whole thing, the Council of Nicaea. You may have heard some of this if you ever read the Da Vinci Code or watched the movie and had some of your brain cells killed by doing so. You can watch and find out what actually happened, which is pretty much whatever Dan Brown said in that book. Do the, believe the exact opposite, and you'll be pretty close to the truth. It's a, it's a travesty of the historical record, but I'll kind of go over that a little bit in after hours and talk about it. But it's a huge issue in the early church. And the question is, does it really matter? Some people say, this is a bunch of cranky old Greek guys arguing fine philosophical points, and what difference does it really make? I mean, Jesus had to be human, we've talked about that, to pay for our sins, he had to be human, but does it really matter if he's God, truly and fully God? What if he's just a, a little G-God? What if he's the highest of all created beings? Isn't that enough? Does it really matter? And what I want to say is absolutely. If he's not truly and fully God, you are not saved, nor am I. We try to capture this in question 24 of the Catechism when we say, why must the Redeemer be truly, fully God? And the Redeemer has to be truly, fully God so that his obedience and suffering would be of infinite value. He would be able to bear the full wrath of God against sin and overcome Satan and death. And I want to break down and look at each of these points as to why it is so essential. But first, we need to understand that the Scripture actually teaches that Jesus is God. One of the things that Dan Brown messes up is he acts like it was a new idea in the 300s, but it's not. It's right there. Jesus himself taught it, as we're going to see in a moment. And uh, it is actually there, uh, even in the Old Testament, and it's clearly here in our text today in Acts chapter 20. Notice what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He's speaking to the Ephesian elders. He's telling them, it's the last time I'm going to see you guys, and he's warning them, in fact, that heretics are going to come into the church. And even among the leaders, there are going to be heretics that are going to deny the truth. And in the middle of that, he says, look, so I'm telling you elders, you have to keep watch over yourselves, and you have to keep a watch over the flock, which the Holy Spirit made you overseers, and I want you to be shepherds of the church of God. And then notice the last phrase. It's the church of God, which he, who is he? God 
That's what the pronoun refers back to. Which God bought with his own blood. Now that is an arresting phrase. That God bought his own church with his own blood. In fact, it's such an arresting phrase that later on some of the scribes who were copying down uh, the book of Acts said, um, I'm going to change it to the church of the Lord, which he bought with his own blood. Because how do you say God had blood and died? And they got into all kinds of philosophical conundrums. But here's the fact. It's quite clear that what Paul originally wrote was the church of God, which he bought with his own blood, or which Luke wrote recording Paul's words. Uh, and we need to understand, Paul's not misspeaking here. He's making a profound point to the uh, Ephesian elders. And the point is this. The blood that redeemed us is the blood of Jesus. And that is the blood of one who is truly and fully God. It is the blood of the God-man who has bought us. So Paul has no problem saying, you are shepherds over the church of God, which God bought with his own blood. And Paul can say this because we see throughout the New Testament the deity of Christ is taught in many places. There are a ton of these, and I'm not going to go through a bunch of them, but I'm going to give you a little easy thing to remember. If you're ever wondering where you can look and say, I know the New Testament teaches that Jesus is God, the place you ought to look is in the first chapter of a whole bunch of books. Very often in the first chapter of a book, you will find a reference to Jesus being God. And I'm just going to take a few of those so we can see it. For example, in John chapter 1, verse 1, John begins with the famous words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And notice here a couple of things. He comes down in verse 14 and tells us, and the word became flesh. He's trying to tell us about the incarnation, about the fact that one who was fully God became truly and fully human. But also notice when he says, in the beginning, when we hear those, what Bible verse comes to mind? Genesis 1.1. John is saying, look, when you go all the way back to the beginning, before the space-time continuum existed, the word was God. He would be answering Arius saying, no, there was no time when he was not. You could also look in 1 John chapter 1 as well. I'm not going to bring that one up. But Paul brings up in Romans chapter 1, as he's writing to the Romans, and he's trying to lay out his gospel, his most detailed letter laying out the gospel. He begins by saying, I'm writing about the gospel regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. So notice he's truly and fully human, which we've been looking at. And who through the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So notice there Paul says, yes, according to his human nature, he comes from David but the Holy Spirit has revealed to us in the resurrection that he is truly and fully the eternal Son of God. Paul also writes in the book of Colossians, which is where our other text comes from. In Colossians chapter 1, he's speaking of Jesus and he says, He is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Unless we think, ah, isn't that what Arius is talking about? In, in this passage, Paul is using firstborn to mean the one who has preeminence, the one who inherits everything. He also talks about Jesus being the firstborn over the new creation, even though he clearly was not the first person raised from the dead, since he had raised a number of people from the dead, but he is firstborn in rank, in preeminence. And so Paul says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation, over all creation, for by him, how many things were created? All things, okay, which John also tells us. And if, if it was created, it was created by Jesus, which means, of course, who can't be created? Jesus can't be created because he would have to create himself because all things that are created are created by him. Whether things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Almost every one of those phrases, if you look biblically, are references to who God is. God is the creator of all things. All things exist by God. All things exist for God. And Paul is saying, make no mistake about it, Jesus is that God. He picks that up in Colossians 2 as well. But if you move down to the book of Hebrews for uh, another uh, author, Hebrews 1, 3, uh, chapter 1, and then verse 3 and verse 8, he's beginning his letter. The entire letter is about the supremacy of Jesus, how Jesus is greater than everything. And he says in verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful words. So notice he is the very express image of God, uh, uh, God's nature, God's glory expressed to us, and he sustains everything by his powerful word, which is, again, an attribute of God. And then in verse 8, the writer quotes out of the book of Psalms and says this. He's talking about what God says to angels and how the angels are servants. And then he comes to what God says about Jesus in the Old Testament, and he says this. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O who? Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. A key theme of the book of Psalms is that the messianic son is actually God. He sits on the throne of God, and he rules and reigns over all things. So all of those are texts where the New Testament over and over and over again refers to Jesus as God. And I brought these specific ones up because it's just a little memory device for you. If you're always wanting to know, just remember the first chapter. At the beginning of the books in the New Testament, they oftentimes dive right into the fact that Jesus is God, because nothing is more important to our salvation. So they get to it right at the beginning of the letters. Now this deity of Christ has a lot of implications. Who's our creator, the link between creation and redemption, the doctrine of the Trinity, all kinds of things that are really important. But the key thing we're looking at is it's necessary for our redemption. And it's again to remind us, this is why Christmas is such a big deal. When we do it every year, when we go through that, that doesn't really matter. Yes, everything hinges on the fact that God has become human 
for us and for our salvation. Now why we say that is because only the God-man can deal with our sin. So in our question we had kind of asked, you know, why does he have to be truly and fully God? And the first reason is so that his obedience and suffering would be of infinite value. In recent weeks, we've gone over the fact that that was why Jesus had to be human, was because to represent us, to be a mediator between us and God, he had to be truly human. He had to obey in our place, fulfilling the requirements that we were supposed to fill, and then he had to pay the penalty that was owed to our sin. That's why there's obedience and suffering. But here's the problem. He has to be human to do that, but how great is the debt we owe to God? It's infinite. When you commit cosmic treason, which is what sin is, and you're not committing cosmic treason. It wouldn't be cosmic treason if you committed it against me. But when it's against God, it is the highest treason there is. And when you have sinned and committed this treason against the infinite God, the debt that is owed is infinite. And there is no way that a fallen human being can do this. So the obedience and the suffering have to be infinite value because redemption is that costly. In fact, the cost is so high that no mere human could pay it. Now this isn't just a matter of logic. The scripture actually tells us this. For example, in Psalm chapter 49, verses 7 and 9, the psalmist is writing and he says this, no man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. So notice what the psalmist says. How many of us could pay for the sins of another human being? Let's be honest. How many of us could even pay for our own sin? I have nothing to offer. My problem is, is everything I do is tainted by sin. Even the offering of myself would simply be another example of my sin, much less to think of someone else. So the psalmist says, no man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. What's another word for that? Infinite. The cost is infinite. Uh, that he should live on forever and not see decay. What's he talking about? Eternal life. Notice the psalmist is saying, look, we're all going to die. We are all subject to death. We are all under the curse. We need redemption, but the problem is no man can redeem another. The cost is too high. No one can pay this cost. And so, if we're going to be redeemed Someone who is more than human is going to have to redeem us. And in fact, as we move down through Israel's history, uh, Isaiah, when we come to the writings of Isaiah, he goes through, and there's a whole series of things known as the servant songs. And in Isaiah 53, he refers to the servant, who's the Messiah, as the arm of the Lord. He says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is how God 
shows his might and his power. And as Isaiah continues these songs, we come to Isaiah 59. And here's what Isaiah writes. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Do you see what he's saying? Here's how bad it's become for humans. You look around for truth and where can you find it? Nowhere. And if you find a human being who would dare to resist evil, what happens to them? They become prey. Everybody else turns on them. And so Isaiah goes on and says, the Lord looked and he was displeased that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no one. And he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. Do you see what Isaiah is saying? God looks around and what he finds is corruption everywhere. And there is no one who can intervene. There is no one who can stand in the gap between God and man. At the beginning of this very chapter uh, in Isaiah 59, it said that your sins have separated you from your God. They've caused God's face to be turned away. He can't even hear you. And as he goes through, he says, God is searching about. He is looking. And he's looking, and there's Isaiah sitting there. But Isaiah can't intercede. Isaiah can't be the redeemer or mediator. As soon as Isaiah had his first vision of God, what was the very first thing Isaiah said? What was me? I'm undone. I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. The very thing God is going to use to bring the word of God is so unclean that the second I see God, I realize I'm not only not the Savior, I need to be saved, even as the prophet. And so Isaiah says, so the Lord realizes he's appalled at this situation, but he does not leave us. God, as it were, rolls up his sleeve, bears his arm, and he's going to work salvation himself. So notice what we're hearing here is because God is infinite, our treason and our rebellion bring infinite debt against him, and only the God-man can pay that infinite price. No one else could. So if Arius is right, you are yet in your sin. And so am I. And we move on because to understand again what's happening here, and I remind us, this is going to kind of build on last week a little bit. The second part of what we're saying is this obedience and suffering are so that he can bear the full wrath of God against sin. I'm not going to delve into this a lot, but we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Again, today, we like to stress the love of God. And I am so glad that God loves us. Because if he did not, he wouldn't have been appalled. He'd have just looked and said, wow, y'all made a mess of all this. Too bad for you. But he didn't. His love. Uh, is propels him to redeem us, but he does it in line with his holiness. God is infinite and perfect in his holiness, and his holy justice must and will punish all sin. To not punish sin is to be unjust. To not punish sin is, in fact, 
to sin. And God will not do this. And this is the heart of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago. I put my hands on the lamb because what am I doing? Transferring my sin onto the lamb. And then what immediately happens to the lamb? It's slain and killed because it's paying for sin. There is a price for sin. In fact, if you look at Isaiah chapter 53, it's, it's the most graphic representation of this where the servant of the Lord, which is Jesus, we're told he is punished, he is pierced, he is crushed for our transgressions, for our sins, for our breaking the law of God. He is bearing the wrath of God. And let me be very clear about this. No matter how strong you might think you are, you could not begin to bear the full fury of the righteous wrath of God. You and I couldn't bear it for the sins we've done this morning, much less the sins of my whole life, much less the sins of everyone in this room, much less the sins of all humanity. From Adam to the end of time. No human could do it. But here is the gospel. The God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, has drained the cup of the fury of the righteous wrath of God against your sin. He has drained it to the dregs. There is not a drop of wrath left for you if you are in the people of God. Not one drop. Friends, that is why, do you hear why Paul says to the Ephesians, you've got to hang on to this. You are shepherding the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Don't fall asleep. Don't be false shepherds. Don't lose sight of this. God so loves the church that in the person of his son, he drank the full wrath of God. All born, all for you and me, you and I are free. Friends, that needs to permeate into your mind. Most Christians I know are walking around under a load and a burden of guilt, a low-level guilt. Because, see, we all know the sin we see in each other. But we also know the sin you can't see, the sin that's in my heart the sin I'm not bold enough to do with my actual mouth and hands, but is there nonetheless. And we know God sees it all. And we have this idea that somehow there's something left for us, that there's some punishment that must still be there. This is why over time the church got into off ideas like, well, even after death you're going to have to go to purgatory and you're going to have to pay and you're going to have to, because surely there's something left. No, there is not. His final words on the cross are, it is what? Finished. 
There's nothing done. It's, it's a glory. It's one great Greek word. Tetelestai. It's in the perfect. It means it's standing as having been completed. There is nothing left. The cup is drained dry. I have borne the wrath of God. Blessing is yours. That is the gospel. Don't walk around under a cloud of guilt. Friends, we, we do not bear wrath of God. Now, that, that doesn't mean then just go sin, because sin's always destructive. It's always distorting. It is always ruining who we are, misshaping us. But the reason to not sin is not because God's going to get me. He's already poured it all out on Jesus. There is nothing left. There is no double indemnity. You will not pay for what has already been paid for. And then he moves on, or we move on to the last thing, which is going to go to our text in Colossians, that not only has Jesus done this in, in bearing the righteous wrath of God, but he has actually overcome Satan and death. On the cross, this is why no human being could do this. He's not only paying for our sin, he's not only bearing the righteous wrath of God, on the other hand, he's turned and he is overcoming Satan's sin and death at the same time while he's bearing the righteous wrath of God. So please hear me on this. This is so important. Sometimes in the early church, they even got this confused. Jesus did not pay a ransom to the devil. The, the ransom was not to the devil. The ransom is to the wrath of God, the righteous wrath that was due to you and me. He's not paying the devil and tricking him and doing that. He is fighting and conquering the devil. He's not giving him an inch of territory. And this is what Paul tells us to do. We who had been held in slavery to Satan and death, Jesus breaks this power as part of his redeeming work. So notice what Paul says here in Colossians chapter 2. What a great picture this is. He says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, somebody help me, how much do dead people do to save themselves? Nothing. Okay, when you were dead, which means, okay, if rescue's going to come, where's it going to come from? Somewhere other than me. Okay, when you were dead in your trespasses and, and sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. So notice here, we were dead, God made us alive, and he's also fulfilled the law, the, the written code that stands there. See, this is what Satan uses, and he points out and says, do you see their sin? See, remember this, the word Satan, what does that mean? Does anybody remember what the word Satan actually means? Accuser. That's actually what the word means. It originally wasn't even a title, it just means the accuser. The, the Greek just took it over from the Hebrew. In the book of Job, it's Hasatan, the accuser, who stands there and he accuses us day and night. And he points and he says, they broke this commandment, they broke this commandment, they broke this commandment, they broke this commandment. And as Jesus is on the cross, bearing the penalty for our sin, Paul says he not only did that, he took the, the thing that was against us, where Satan is pointing it out, and he nails that to the cross. 
There's a song that we sing sometimes, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. The law of God does not thunder against you. When Satan stands before the throne of God, as we see pictured in, the, in Job and in the book of Revelation, we are told he is overcome by the blood of the Lamb because all of that has been nailed to the cross. And then notice what Paul says in verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, suddenly Satan finds he has no accusation to bring. So instead of being able to accuse you and I, he no longer can do that. And then he finds out he's disarmed and Jesus makes a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Now, when Paul writes this, when the Romans would win in an area and everybody that he would be writing to had been conquered by the Romans at one time or another, they come in, they defeat your army, they take the leaders of your army and your people, and they put them in a parade and they make a spectacle of them. They take them through the streets of Rome and they say, these are the people who thought they could defeat us. But they can't. We are mocking them. Paul takes that analogy and says, that's exactly what went on and it went on at the cross. Picture the, he's saying, Satan thinks, at the moment he thinks he's won. He thinks I got him. The one that's been prophesied, the one that has come, has now been betrayed by the very people he came to save. In fact, his own people, Israel, have rejected him. They have turned away. I've got him. He's going to the cross. I win. And Paul says, oh no, he doesn't. At that very moment, everything that he had used to rail against us is snatched out of his hand. It is taken away. It is nailed to the cross. Jesus takes Satan and all of his powers and he disarms them and he puts them in shackles and they are behind him and he leads them in triumphant procession showing that you and I are free. At the very moment, that he's also bearing the wrath of God for our sin. Any human being going to be able to do this? There's no way, friends. We couldn't do any one of those things, much less all of them at once. Jesus has come, and notice, notice this, this is not in uh, one of our texts from this morning, but Jesus came to destroy the work of Satan to deliver us from sin and Satan and death. In 1 John 3, 8, John writes and says, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And he's talking there, in that chapter, he talks about our condemnation, our fear, but he also talks about the power of sin in our life. And so this means, all of it taken together, that Jesus, the God-man, has borne God's full wrath against our sin and treason. He has paid our infinite debt. And at the same moment, he has defeated Satan, sin, and death for you and me. That is what it means that we have a Redeemer. Now, how do we apply this? 
there's two things. One of them's a, a bit more theological, and then one more practical. The first one, do I see the importance of the deity of Christ? Again, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in after hours, and you can tune in there on Tuesday and watch. But, see, the Da Vinci Code is just a fairly recent expression of a constant syndrome we have to deny the deity of Christ. There are always people, even people in the church, who want to say, well, the deity of Christ and the Trinity are not important. They are not only important, they are absolutely essential. It does not get any more important than this. The deity of Christ is not just some philosophical concept. It's not something that a bunch of cranky old Greek guys who've been tortured for too long for their Christian faith started arguing over. It is essential to the work of Jesus. If Jesus is not truly and fully God, he cannot accomplish the work that he was sent to accomplish. Only the God-man could stand in our place. Only the God-man could fulfill our call. And only the God-man can bear the wrath that we are due. So the deity of Christ, far from being a philosophical abstraction, is absolutely essential. It is a matter of eternal life and death. Eternal life and death. I can't think of anything that would make the stakes even higher. And so, just as a, a reminder to tack away, do not be quick to throw away beliefs that the church fought and died for. Sometimes we're like, oh, you know, that went on a long time ago. I'm not sure why it's more. No, if the church fought and died and blood was spilt to maintain something, hold on to that as precious, even if you don't understand it at the time. We are too quick to throw these things aside. So that's the first thing, understanding the importance of the deity of Christ. And you don't have to be a theologian to understand why it's important. But the second thing is, do I respond to everything that Jesus did for me? Because this isn't just a matter of philosophy. This should transform and change who I am. This should fuel uh, proper worship, passionate worship of our God. In the incarnation, Jesus humbled himself so that I might be exalted. The Son of God became human so that I might become a child of God. He bore the wrath of God so that I might bear and be covered with the blessing of God. He died that I might live. He was raised so that I, too, would overcome death. That's what Jesus has done for you and me. This is not philosophy. This should prompt worship. Jesus has lived in my place, bore the wrath of God in my place, drinking that cup to its dregs, and at the same time has disarmed and defeated Satan and death for me. And I want you to hear, this is what God has done for you. This is what he has done for me. And so, when I hear that, what is my response? 
first question for every one of us to consider is, have I responded in faith, receiving this great redemption? Because there were those there. You remember there's, there's two thieves crucified with Christ. One of them responds in faith. One of them responds in cursing Jesus. There are soldiers, we're told, there's a soldier, Mark tells us, at the foot of the cross who says, surely this is the Son of God. There are others who are bartering for His clothes. There are those among the people of Israel who embrace Christ as Messiah. There are those who crucify the very Son of God. What's my response? Have I responded in faith to this great redemption? If you have not, I urge you, please do. If you've never heard this, thought about this, worked through this, grab me and talk uh, to talk afterwards and we can sit and chat about it. I want you to say, because see, when you understand the depth of our sin, you realize how good news the gospel really is. Friend, you cannot resolve your sin problem, nor can I. But Christ has done it for us. And that Great redemption is received by faith alone. It is not received by what I do. All I keep doing is adding more sin into the mix. Only Christ can do it. Have I responded to that? If you have, if you're here as a believer, my question to, to those who have responded in faith is, do I respond in worship daily and weekly? Does this, does this every day Cause me to, you know, we sang that song, I stand amazed. Do I stand amazed? I was sitting there yesterday uh, getting stuff together and making pasta sauce, and I had worship music going, and I was sitting there and thinking how amazing it is that Christ has redeemed me. This is not, I'm off on a mountain somewhere. I'm just sitting in the kitchen cooking. But to start singing about that, to start thinking about that, I was standing there amazed that God has redeemed me. Does that prompt worship? Friends, if it doesn't, we are not meditating on this enough. And this is why we gather, okay? If, see, if we understand this, it makes sense why you got out in that kooky weather this morning and drove here. If you didn't because of God's redemption for you, you're weird. Because just stay home. Stay warm. But see, when I understand it, it doesn't even matter if I'm in China and they might arrest me. It doesn't matter if I'm in Iran and they might kill me for gathering with the people of God. I've got to worship because he redeemed me. This is why the church has always worshipped. Is it prompting that in my life? Friends, I want to encourage you to think on our great redemption and worship him. Worship him each day this week. And if, see what we're doing when we come together on Sunday ought to be that on the overflow of as I've worshiped all week long, thinking on it, we come together and we celebrate together the great salvation we have in Christ. And if I've had a rough week and it's been bad, it's a great time to be in and be reminded and be encouraged and to sing the gospel, to sing the truth, to pray it together, to open God's word together and ultimately then to come 
to the table together. Brothers and sisters, meditate on this. Meditate on constantly. Don't live under a cloud of guilt. Your sin has been redeemed by God himself. And so we're going to come now to the table. And as we come to the table, you know, sometimes we come to the Lord's table and we get a little somber because we say, well, I'm going to be thinking about my sin. I'm going to be confessing it. And that's appropriate. There are times and places to do that. But today I want us to come in a time of celebration. This table is also known as the Eucharist, the thanksgiving. And if I'm giving thanks, I'm not focusing on my sin. There's nothing there to be thankful for. I'm focusing on the redemption that is offered to me as I come to the table. So I want to encourage us today as we come to this table. We have sin, we confess it, but I want to really encourage us to come with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our redeemer, our mediator, who has put our sin away. And so, as we come, we have a few visitors here, and we want to let you know you do not have to be a member of Bay Ridge Christian Church to participate at this table. It's not the table of Bay Ridge. It's the table of the Lord. And so all who embrace Christ by faith are part of the church which God has bought with his own blood. That blood cleanses you from all sin and makes you priests and kings and secures all of God's covenant blessings for you. Brothers and sisters, come now to the table prepared for you and freely eat and drink. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Go ahead and peel back to get ready for the bread. And I will pray and we will take the bread together. Father, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you looked and you were displeased that there was no justice. And even more, you were appalled that there was no one who was able to intervene and save. And so your own arm worked salvation for you. The Lord Jesus, your very word, righteousness, holiness, and wisdom took our flesh and he worked salvation for us. So this morning we give you thanks that he is the God-man, our Redeemer and Mediator, and through him we are your people and you are our 
God. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, you are the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Lord, those words were written at that council of Nicaea, and we confess that they are true. Through you, all things were made, and through your blood, we have been redeemed. And so we lift up this cup and we give you thanks for the blood of the covenant, confessing that it is our only hope of salvation and life. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. If you can stand with me, and we will cry out to the Holy Spirit to fill us, and then I encourage you to receive the blessing of the Lord and the benediction. Holy Spirit, you are the Lord, the giver of life, proceeding from the Father and the Son, and we worship and glorify you with the Father and the Son. When we were dead in our sin, we were reborn and renewed by you so that we are now justified by grace and are heirs with the hope of eternal life. So come upon us in fullness and power now, for we are the people of God. O Holy Spirit, fill us now to overflowing. Open our eyes that we may know our Father better and become like our Lord Jesus. Fill our mouths with praise and open doors for us so that we may serve the purposes of our God this week. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our God. And God's people say, amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, you are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.